If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What exactly goes into recreating clothing from the past? What are the most tricky fashions to get right? And how important is historical accuracy? In today's episode... Emily Briffitt speaks to Jane Malcolm Davies, Associate Professor at the Centre for Textile Research and one of the researchers behind the Tudor Tailor, a project that unpicks the historical sources to give us a glimpse of what people really wore in the past. Here, Jane discusses the challenges of learning the historical tools of the trade needed to recreate historical garments and offers some advice to budding recreators. So... We're looking at recreating historical dress. Now, can you tell us about your background and your speciality? Well, I actually originally did a journalism degree. And after several years of working on weekly newspapers, I became very interested in how history is presented to the public at historic sites. And that was partly because I had been a volunteer in reenactment societies and other projects where people dressed up in costume and talked to the visiting public. And what I was particularly interested in was how 
the use of reconstructed dress helped communicate with the visitor. I was also interested in the relationship between the person in costume with the visitor to make that as productive a relationship as possible. So I did a postgrad diploma in heritage interpretation. And as part of that course, I looked into the feasibility of setting up a business to recruit and train heritage site interpreters who would wear historic dress. And my big break, really, if you can call it that, was that um, I started working for the historic royal palaces, providing costumed interpreters at the Tower of London and Hampton Court Palace and later at Kensington and other of the royal palaces. And the thing that struck me during the 12 years that I did that was it was really quite difficult to get accurate, accessible information about dress in the past. And when you think we were doing different periods of history, so the Tudor period at Hampton Court and William and Mary period at um, in the King's Apartments at Hampton Court and the Georgian period, this was quite a lot of historic dress to be researching and making and trying to make presentable to the public so that it could be part of the story we were telling. And that led me to the idea for my doctoral research, which was how best to use that technique with the visitors, but also how could we improve the resources available for reconstructing historic dress. And that's really how I've ended up where I am now. I've tried to work out how can we make the evidence from original artefacts more available and how can we use pictorial evidence in a scientific way to help us understand clothes in the past. And similarly, how can documentary evidence help fill the gaps in those two sources? And at the Tudor Taylor, which is where I now do most of this kind of work, we refer to that as a pad. So you have pictorial, archaeological or artefactual and documentary evidence, which provides a firm foundation, the, the pad on which a reconstruction can stand. And that really draws on the idea of triangulation of sources, which is what most of the natural sciences would do if they're trying to do a robust piece of work. So, yeah, that's that's where I've ended up thinking about the methodology of drawing on these three sources and then cross-referencing them in order to come up with the best guess at what these garments were like in the past for the purposes of um, communicating with the visiting public, but also for the sake of the reconstructions themselves. What can we learn about garments in the past by doing robust reconstructions? So before we delve into the evidence that we have, and probably the evidence that we don't have, can you just tell us why does why does recreating historical dress, why does it matter? I suppose the honest answer is perhaps it doesn't matter. There are maybe many more important things that we could be doing with our time. But my attitude is that if we're going to have reconstructions of dress, particularly at heritage sites which are thought to be authoritative environments, they should be as good as they can be. They should reflect the current knowledge we have about dress in the past. They shouldn't be a cheap alternative that's easy to create and use we wouldn't 
we wouldn't recreate a piece of furniture and put it in a room display with that attitude. So why would we do it with historic dress? I guess it just comes down to if you if something's worth doing, it's worth doing well. With reconstructing historical dress, how far do you think we can actually come to reconstructing historical lives? That's a very interesting question. There are some people who who recreate historic dress because they feel that by wearing it, it helps them step back into the past. My issue with that is that our minds are incapable of capturing the mind of a person in the past. We can't unlearn what we know about life in the 21st century. But arguably, the sensory experience of wearing clothing made as accurately as possible will give you some insights into the role of clothing at the time and also some physical knowledge of the materials that were available at the time. And as we know, some people learn better through physical experiences than they do through intellectual experiences. So anything which helps us explore ideas, investigate ideas in different ways, makes history and and ideas from the past more accessible to more people in more ways. What sources then do we draw upon to recreate historical clothing? The three main sources are pictorial evidence, and that can be not only paintings and portraits, but it can be effigies, other forms of sculpture. It might be wooden relief carvings. Um, There's all sorts of pictorial representations, even um, woodcuts, in um, pamphlets and books. And then um, we have the artefacts themselves, which have survived from the past. And they, you would think, would be a very rich source, but often they're not in as good condition as pictorial evidence. They can be fragmentary. They're also often not necessarily the typical things which have survived. They might have survived because they're special or unusual in some way. And then the documentary evidence, which my business partner, Nina Mikhaila, and I particularly value because it's less accessible than the other two, but it's very rich if you have the patience to dig down into it and often provides insights that the other two sources fail to provide. The difficulty is all three sources have major limitations Pictorial sources in particular are very seductive. They're immediate. You look at them and you think you can understand what you're seeing. But often they're very complex in the way they've been put together. And they may not depict reality at all. And of course, they don't show you what the underlayers are. They only show you usually the front of a person. It's very rare that you get a detailed back view. And often it might only be in a crowd scene or a group Um, of figures and so you're not getting the level of detail you would with a portrait from the front and similarly with the artifacts as I mentioned they might be in very poor condition they might have been altered many times before they've arrived in a museum they may have been improperly conserved in the past and so all sorts of strange guesswork has gone into the format they now occupy and similarly with documentary evidence, we, have, we may have absolutely no idea what certain terms actually mean. We can't always marry up the words used in the documents with actual garments. And sometimes secondary documentary sources have made assumptions about dress in the past that it's very hard to get 
out of our minds. So certain words and certain styles of garment seem to have embedded themselves in our stereotypical understanding of Tudor dress, which really aren't warranted from the evidence of the originals. So what would you say are our biggest gaps in our understanding? I I, I think my immediate answer would be everything. <laughs> it's, I think it's really, really hard to have any confidence. For example, in, in some of my own research was to look at how we can attempt to replicate the fabric that was used for knitted caps in the 16th century. And what you actually end up realising is that the sheep of the 16th century simply don't exist today. The intensive animal husbandry of the intervening centuries have made those sheep non-existent. So we're only ever going to be able to approximate the fleece that in those days would have been spun and then knitted and then fulled and dyed to create a knitted cap, which had a surface like velvet. It was a a way of mimicking the texture of velvet, obviously involving a huge number of people with different expertise, but primarily using a fleece that does not exist today. So I think the biggest lesson in reconstruction is to accept that we have to be very humble about what is possible and acknowledge that there are many things that are just impossible with the resources we have today. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. 
In that case, what would you say is your standpoint on reconstructing with maybe modern materials and modern techniques? I think all reconstructions should have a stated purpose and that purpose will allow certain types of compromise. So if if your intention is to replicate an extant garment or an extant um, painting, then you can only make choices which are as close as possible to that original. If your purpose is to create something which is practical for use in an educational context or to recreate something, as I did with my fleece experiments, where I wanted to investigate what is the nearest fleece we can use today to produce a particular finish, you use your purpose as your guiding light for the compromises you make along the way. And we have to be realistic that sometimes it's budget, sometimes it's time, but it's important to make the right compromises along the way so that what you end up with is not something which has no value as a reconstruction, um, which is very easy to do if you take the easy, cheap option all the time. Sometimes you have to take hard decisions, spend a lot of money on one part of the project in order to then have an item at the end which is of use as a reconstruction. Other than maybe accuracy, what different considerations do you need to take into account when recreating historical dress? I would say um, the sorts of projects that I'm really interested in now are the ones where we are testing variables that will help us understand dress in the past. So whether it's to investigate the best equivalent materials or it's to consider the labour, the tacit knowledge, the the skill that went into recreating something. The, The way we develop those sorts of experiments to learn something about the way garments were made in the past is one one way of approaching it but if for example what i did for years in dressing people in historic clothing in order to work with the public at hampton court palace what i was concerned about was that those clothes communicated to the visitors that they would provoke questions and they would help the interpreters explain the world and the the social context of those people. So then it's important to get certain details right that allow you to introduce themes that you might not otherwise be able to talk about easily. So you're thinking about how the clothes can tell a story and to help the interpreter explain complicated issues like protectionist trade legislation or concepts of what was proper or appropriate for different ranks of society in the past. And then clothes get very sophisticated in terms of the the detail that you can add to help tell those complicated tales. What would you maybe say are the hardest, almost difficult items of clothing to get right or things that are maybe really commonly done very wrong? There are different levels at which someone who wants to recreate dress can, if you like, check themselves. One is that the silhouette... The, the way the garments go together and the shape that a person makes, that that's a, a sort of stage one check, I would say. And obviously, arguably, you could make those garments out of any fabric to get the silhouette right. Then there's the question of, the, does the fabric 
have the right kind of drape and weight? Does it behave in the way that those fabrics would have done at the part in the past? And that's very easy to get wrong, simply because the things we have available to use today that you can buy off the shelf are not going to be, in most cases, appropriate for dress in the past. And thirdly, we really have to acknowledge the craft expertise that's required to make clothing from history. A person was not dressed head to foot by one person. They were they were dressed by a team of experts who specialised in making particular types of fabrics, particular types of accessories, particular types of garments. And one individual maker today cannot possibly recreate all those skills, which in most cases were learnt over an apprenticeship of seven years, further training as a journeyman, and then practice as a master. So I think you have to consider the the army of people or the, the team of people you need to realistically recreate an outfit for a person in the past. Have there been any particular skills that we know have existed but we just can't access now? I'd say there are there are a lot. I mean, for example, my own particular interest is in the history of knitting. And although we've got many expert knitters today who knit in different ways and we can do all kinds of experiments to see should something be knitted round or should it be knitted flat? Was it knitted on an early frame or was it knitted on a later machine? The big problem is needles, knitting needles. We don't really know very much about how knitting needles were produced. We know wire was drawn and that knitting needles can be made of wire, but we don't we don't know the extent of needle production. There are very, very few items that have been um, identified as being historical knitting needles. So that's a huge unknown in terms of the history of knitting. Are there any skills that you've had to learn in your experience that you've particularly enjoyed maybe? Well, fulling is um, quite a good workout. And if you have any anger management issues, fulling is a really good therapeutic thing to do. And I have run fulling workshops where people have really gone for it with the fulling hammers. Um, So that's been fun to do. And also for the experimental outcomes, it's been really interesting. Um, I was already a knitter myself before I became interested in the history of knitting. But what I've done over the years is I have recognised that the expertise required really only comes from a lifetime of craft experience. So my advice is always to involve craft experts to do the labour because they're much better at it. So many reconstruction projects that are written up and published um, or even are done as... um, masters or um, PhD projects, if the the researcher themselves attempts to make something from the 16th century, usually all they discover is the level of their own ignorance in this craft activity. It There's much more to be learned by recruiting a person who's already got that stuff, that craft expertise to do the work with you, to collaborate, and then you get greater insights into the the problems, the possible solutions of the time. How how can we overcome some of the challenges in trying to recreate dress? Um, 
I think that's a more productive approach than to take a PhD researcher who does their own craft work and simply ends up saying, mm, well, I'm, I'm not very good at that. To return to talking about the source material, how representative would you say it actually is? Well, what remains? Is any of it typical of the lower or perhaps middling sort or are we getting a lot of the more noble ranks in society? I think it's really hard to answer that question because, of course, without knowing what was typical at the time, um, we can't really measure what the remains we have today tell us. I'd say we have to treat all of it with suspicion. And it is a good idea to try and do as much triangulation of data as possible. So not to rely on the seductive sources like the, the paintings, um, but to try and delve into the documentary data in more detail. And having said that, I, I would say we should be much more ambitious in our uses of new um, methodologies. So, for example, for the typical Tudor, we built a database of more than 57,000 items from wills, inventories and accounts, which allowed me to do statistical analysis of what the trends in garments were. And although we put a lot of it into the typical Tudor, there's still more of that kind of um, statistical analysis we could do with that much material. When we published the Tudor Child, we did a similar exercise with over a thousand paintings of children. So it's possible to use quantitative analysis in ways that really for art history and only perhaps in economic approaches to documentary evidence have been used in the past. Um, it's it's exciting to think how we can use computing power to, to help us build databases of evidence. Um, and also, I think there's a lot to be gained in cross-referencing material that exists in the same category. So the more we're able to pull together extant garments and compare and contrast them, the more we can learn about what's usual and what's not. So to give you an example, my Knitting in Early Modern Europe project, which was my Marie Curie Fellowship um, work, I built a database of more than 100 knitted caps that survive. And it's hard to believe that there are actually that many ordinary men's dress items that survive. And by looking at all of these, you get a real sense of what's normal and what's not so normal. And what I wanted to do was to put as much of that online in a collection that people could um, visit and do their own comparative analysis. So I wasn't able to put all of the knitted caps in the database, but all the ones of a particular style and all the linings are there in the Knitting in Early Modern Europe database for other people who maybe want to think about knitting in the past to go and look at the precise measurements and the gauge of the knitting and the diameter of the yarn. The, this is the nitty gritty you need to know if you want to recreate a knitted cap from the 16th century. And since then, I've been able to do some... I've learned how to do radiocarbon dating with some samples I, I had permission to take from the caps, which help us 
think about whether we can date them more accurately. And most recently, I have been to work with a colleague in Lisbon, in Portugal, who's a dyes specialist, to look at new, exciting techniques to examine dyes by using the tiniest amounts of an original item. And there's a lot of exciting work that can be done with these small, small samples. And we can learn a lot about that by looking at what archaeological textile specialists have done routinely for a lot longer than historical dress specialists have done because there's been a much stronger tradition of taking samples and analysing them in the archaeological textiles world than there has been in the, in the historical textiles world. So that that's the kind of thing I think we should be pushing for is, is more cutting-edge um, analysis of the original material. In the same way that now paintings are routinely x-rayed, the paint and the technique of the artist is examined to help explain the context of the painting in more detail. It sounds like there's lots of exciting projects going on there. Is there anything that you are particularly passionate or excited about yourself? I, I do think that knitting is the, um, is the little sister and poor cousin of textile history um, which is ironic because knitting is a very recent technique it, it doesn't go back thousands and thousands of years it's there's no evidence of it in the ancient world there are types of single needle um, looping which go back to that period but knitting as we know it today with two or more needles does not go back that far and yet the evidence we do have has not been systematically analyzed to see what it can tell us and we're really overdue an updated history of the development of knitting. Um, so I'd, I'd like to carry on doing uh, or, or have more opportunity to carry on doing that kind of work if I could. I've done more work on the history of knitting with wool than I have with silk, which is a whole other area of early modern textile development. And also, of course, um, linen. And cotton later on, so there, there are a lot of aspects of knitting history which have not been well documented in the recent past. Okay, so I just want to ask you, what advice would you give listeners who want to go away and recreate historical dress? I'd say just go and do it. Um, think think about what it what your purpose is. Is it that you are you want to enjoy the craft aspect of making something for yourself, in which case you, you can make up your own rules and decide you know, how, how to approach the materials and how to approach the need for various craft techniques. Um, part of the fun might be to learn those craft techniques, no matter how inexpert you are at them to start with. And you might find that you have a real passion for a particular craft technique. Or um, if your purpose is to, to try and find out more about the materials and the processes of the past, to think scientifically about how you control your variables to discover a, a useful outcome and not worry about replicating the entire garment if that's not necessary for what you're trying to investigate. But I think the important thing is to, on one hand, don't be overwhelmed by the challenge but on the other hand, don't be too blasé about how 
simple and easy you can make it by having too many compromises along the way. It's good to try and find a balance between the challenge and the skill level you have. And then the outcome will be something that it's worth reflecting on to consider what you do next. Because it will always be a case of, well, I did my best. Now I want to try again and do something that either tells me something different or improves on what I discovered in the first reconstruction I did. And finally, for those wanting to go away and find out more, what recommendations would you give? Where should people go and look? That's actually really difficult to answer because there are very few... um, There are very few pieces of research written up and there are very few sources that you can go to that talk about reconstruction as a methodology. Um, It's something that I'm working on myself at the moment and I'm hoping that an article will come out in Heritage Science quite soon about a proposed model for reconstruction, which I've been um, developing. Um, I suppose... The, the the simplest thing is to try to make contacts with people who have the skills that you need for the recreation you want to try and do and see whether you can learn from them. The, the maxim in the craft world, which I learned from my um, granny when I was, for example, learning to sew and learning to knit, is most craft skills are learned by sitting next to Nelly. You don't read it in a book And you don't learn it in a vacuum. You sit next to someone who shows you and corrects you as you go. And I suppose nowadays, one way of sitting next to Nelly is watching YouTube videos by people who know what they're doing and attempting to copy what they do. But that doesn't recreate the camaraderie you can have by actually sitting in a room and working with other people. So some of the best reconstructions come out of social situations where people get together in groups to work on their projects. And many, many reenactment societies run those kinds of events where they they knit and natter or they sew and drink tea. And that's recreating a social situation of the past even if people were working hard in craft workshops, they were still often in a social situation um, and learning from each other. That was Jane Malcolm-Davies, Associate Professor at the Centre for Textile Research and one of the team behind the Tudor Taylor. Jane's latest book, which is co-authored with Nina Mikhaila, is called The Typical Tudor and is out now. If you want to find out more about the project, you can find them online at the Tudor Taylor. And if you're interested in finding more about Jane's investigations into the world of historical knitting, simply search for Knitting in Early Modern Europe. Jane recently chatted to us about Tudor garments more generally, so just search for What Did the Tudors Wear to bring that up in your podcast feeds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. 
From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.